We're going to be looking at uh, the reading from Malachi, so uh, if you want to flick back over that way, it would be a great thing, but uh, we're going to thank God again and ask for his help as we look at his word more closely. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that in your generosity uh, you've provided all great things for us. You've given us uh, houses, you've given us clothing, you've given us food, you've given us uh, friendship and family, you've given us uh, church friendship and family here and we thank you that you've given us your word and you speak to us by it. Uh, Father, we ask that you would uh, enable us to have humble hearts as we hear it today, uh, that where we need to change, uh, you give us the strength to change uh, and that we would as well find comfort uh, where we're feeling weak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How would you know if someone had actually come home to God? So last week we took a break from Malachi. We looked at Jesus' story of a father who had invited two sons home. Uh, one son had blatantly despised his father before he'd returned. Uh, the other son gave the impression that he was with his father. You know, he was around the place, but his heart was a million miles away. Both sons needed to come inside and come home. One son was wild, living and immoral. The other was law-abiding and respectable and religious. And Jesus told it to explain God's call, a call to all types of people to come home, to return. But if respectable, kind of law-abiding, even religious people can actually be far from God just as much as wild profligates, how are you going to tell if someone has actually taken up God's offer? What, what does it look like to return to God? Uh, if you've taken up God's invitation to come home to him, what's it going to look like for you if you know, religion and respectability alone aren't it? Well, our, our oracle from Malachi wrestles with just that issue. Uh, the God of second chances calls his people to return to him and it's spelt out uh, for us and for Israel that it means we need to take the risk of wholeheartedly trusting him. At Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees. You haven't kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. Now, it's not that God is you know, impenetrable, that he's a non-reactive being. He's not a, a tank that rolls on, never needing change course, that nothing affects him. But it isn't saying that, that God is as emotionally responsive as a brick. Um, when he says, I do not change, he's just following up on the opening lines of the book. Uh, if you hear when we looked at it, Malachi 1.1, I have loved you. It was the grid we have to read the whole of this book through. I have loved you. Even when Israel have been unfaithful, I, the Lord, do not change, so you are not destroyed, for I have loved you. He's revealing how the, the deepest level, he is a God of second chances and a God of faithfulness. Ever since God had established his people, uh, his, his people Israel, his bride, he calls them, they have been unfaithful. Uh, in verse 7 that we just, said, uh, just read, we see God isn't just flared up about one tiny little incident. There's this pattern of repeatedly uh, turning away, generation after generation have strayed. Hard word as it is, they actually deserve to be destroyed at this point. 
slap in the face after slap in the face. And yet God doesn't change. He promised to love them and when he gives his word he doesn't do it lightly. And so rather than destruction, they get an offer on the table. A second chance. Verse 7, return to me and I'll return to you. It's that same unchanging character that we saw in the Father last week in Luke 15. Inviting both his offensive distant sons home. That's great news for us, isn't it? I, the Lord, do not change, so you are not destroyed. Return to me and I'll return to you. God has still not changed. Uh, We who repeatedly fail and fail and fail can keep coming back to him. But what does that look like? What's the content of returning? That's Israel's question 500 years before Jesus turned up. How shall we return? A great question for us to us as well. How shall we return? Verse 8, you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? And yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. See, the principle of returning is this, to wholeheartedly trust God's advice in everything. To take the risk of doing things his way rather than any other. And to do anything less than that is actually to rob God of his due. The demonstration of the principle is that Israel are robbing God with their tithe. Um, Tithing just means giving 10% of your income. Uh, When the land had been divided up, when Israel had moved in there, uh, different tribes of the 12 tribes, they received land, but the tribe of Levi got none. They instead were set apart to work at the temple uh, rather than do the kind of regular farming work, working at the land, other kind of jobs. And so the rest of the nation were required to give 10% of their income Uh, to the temple. It was a sign that they respected and trusted God and it was also a way that they cared uh, for that that brother tribe of Levi, those who served them at God's house. And because it was a sign of dependence on God, they were to give the first 10%. Trusting that God is going to keep providing for them rather than they wait until the very end and kind of find out, work out the profit margins and make 10% off that. But Israel in verse 9 are under a curse. At this point in history, the land's not producing like they'd like it to. And so they're not giving the whole tithe to the temple. Now, the the robbery of God is not about the money, it's about respect. Now, looking on from a distance from us, you know, several thousand years later, it, it looks like the Israelites are making sound economic decisions. You know, times are tight. And so they've just got to look after themselves a little first. You know, in verse 10, there is a little bit of tithing going on. God says, bring the whole tithe rather than just a little bit of it. So there is a little bit going on. You know, isn't this sound economic rationalism? Yeah, you can, you can just hear them saying, oh Lord, um, sure, we're, we're going to start giving just when times get a little bit better. Yeah, when the mortgage is paid off, that's when we'll start picking it up. Oh, the kids, we've got to wait for them to move out. Oh, um, Early retirement, once that nest egg comes through, then then we'll be able to do the tithe. Yeah, sound economics, isn't it? Well, not in God's estimation. God says it's robbery. 
They are robbing God of what he asked them. Uh, He is calling the nation to return to him by wholeheartedly trusting his advice in absolutely everything, including uh, their wallets. Going deeper, it's an issue for them of who they believe. Israel are greedy idolaters. They have left God's ways to trust a different God, to trust their money. It's, it's gold rather than God in which they trust. In medieval times, um, greed was assessed as a disease. Uh, so theologians of the Middle Ages called it the spiritual equivalent of dropsy. Uh, if you don't know what dropsy is, I didn't either. Um, dropsy is a disease that provokes uh, an insatiable thirst for water, even though the body is actually already filled with fluid. And so the more the sick person tries to satisfy the thirst, the more it was stimulated and so death ensues. That analogy, uh, that greed is a disease, is still used today, not necessarily by theologians, even non-Christians have made that observation. Uh, Clive Hamilton's book, Affluenza, same diagnosis, that Western materialism is a disease and we are gripped in a consumption binge unparalleled in human history. Uh, Hamilton claims that we are addicted to overconsumption, uh, even at great personal costs. But the Bible's assessment of greed is even more damning. Greed is idolatry. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Paul is even sharper. Greed is idolatry, he says in Colossians. How can they say that? How can Jesus and Paul get away with that? How is greed a replacement God? Martin Luther points out, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. See, a God is what you trust in. A God is what you love. A God is what you obey above all else. And money demands love and devotion. That is by right the Lord's. Money calls for trust and confidence. That's actually by right the Lord's. Money creates service and obedience in people. That is by right the Lord's. Greed is idolatry. Now, Israel might be giving some leftovers down at the temple, but they are far from God. And so God is saying, return to me by taking the risk of trusting me even with your savings, even with the necessities of life. I think it's a remarkably modern word. Uh, Greed is still idolatry. And we are still a greedy people. In our society, the the economy, like God, is thought to be able to supply people's needs without limit. Uh, And, like God, the economy is fundamentally unknowable and mysterious and strange and almost mystical. Uh, Now, money, don't mishear me, money is not evil. Uh, Money is good. Money is made by God. It's to be received with thanksgiving. But to trust it is to rob God. Now, that strong desire to acquire more and more and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is actually an attack on God's exclusive rights to human love and devotion. God's exclusive rights to trust and confidence, service and obedience. Now, Israel wouldn't trust God's ways. 
they wouldn't actually return to the God who offered them a second chance. And so they lived under a curse. And I think this word from Malachi has a lot to say to our world that suffers from misplaced trust and affluenza. A a counsellor recounted this story. I was talking to a guy recently, he and his wife having trouble with their daughter and we talked about this and that and that was fine and and then when we were talking about what the difficulties were and that was fine and we were getting on and then it came around to how much the problem of the problem was dad. Uh, And dad was working 15 hours a day, seven days a week. People were ringing him up in the middle of the night and things like that. He looked physically ill. Uh, He said, oh, it's just the work. I said, well, can you cut it down? It doesn't look like it's doing you very much good. Uh, He said, oh, yeah, we've just got to keep going at it. I said, "Um, what if you just said, forget it, I'm going somewhere else? He responded, oh, I did that last year. And they just put up my pay by 25%. How do you walk away from that? It's a tale of modern slavery. And the only freedom is to return to the true God. To wholeheartedly trust God's advice in everything. To take the risk of doing things his way. And now, of course, this is true of any area. The principle remains true in every area. But the point in case... Uh, is idolatry of greed. But anywhere where we don't take the risk of trusting God in everything, then we are robbing God. But the God of second chances sees that and tables an offer. Return to me by putting me to the test, he says. So verse 10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if, see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you won't have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. See, you can't enjoy God's blessings apart from wholehearted trust of him. And so, and so God challenges Israel. Take a risk. Put me to the test and just see if I won't bless you. See if it won't go to the very, for the very best for you. And the language is powerful. So, so normally to put God to the test is a sign of unbelief. It's, it's sin. But God throws down the gauntlet. Test me. Just return to me. Try serving me wholeheartedly just, just for a change. Just give it a go and see what happens. And God promises that if they do that, if they come back and they have a right relationship with him, they're going to enjoy abundant blessing. And so Malachi uses this language of abundance. Uh, That God's going to to throw open the floodgates of heaven uh, where he provides all good things and there's going to be so much blessing come down on them that they're not going to be able to handle it. They won't know what to do with it. They won't have anywhere to store it. See, if they really believed in a God who made this world out of nothing then there isn't a problem of scarcity. It's a problem of abundance. An abundance that others are going to see and they're going to marvel at. Now, as Christians today, we don't need to tithe. We aren't under the law. We aren't national Israel. We don't have a tax to take care of the tribe of Levi here in Australia. I haven't met many Levites here. Instead, we're under grace. 
lavish generosity. And yet that call to return wholeheartedly to God, to, to trust in him alone rather than our wealth or greed, it reminds me. It's still true that you can't enjoy the blessings God gives you out of relationship with him, unless you can't enjoy them fully. Uh, three things I think we need to take to heart from this oracle. Firstly, we, we need to recognise the danger of greed, of trying to serve both God and money. Over and over we're going to be encouraged to trust in our bank account, the one that we can see, rather than the God we can only hear. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki wrote a bestseller. I haven't got a copy, but perhaps others here do. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, what the rich teach their kids about money that the poor and middle class do not. Uh, One review uh, of it read, or commented, Rich Dad isn't just a wealth creation manual, it's a religious tract. Kiyosaki has, has created a cosmology of fiscal winners and sinners. Its economic evangelism culminates in a misquoting of St Paul's admonition to Timothy that the lack of money is the root of all evil. Blessed are the rich. They won't inherit the kingdom because they've got it right now and the poor can go to hell. That was one reviewer's assessment of rich dad, poor dad. Now, all the time we're being told again and again, greed and self-reliance is wise. But in reality, what it's doing is subtly undermining our confidence that the really wise decision in life is to actually wholeheartedly risk trusting God, the God of abundance. Greed is idolatry. Martin Luther saw it and the danger of false worship and he urged people, pray for protection against greed. He said, flee greed as energetically as one flees hell. Secondly, I want us to see the value of God's riches. It's not enough simply to run away from danger. You need to head off to safety. Desire itself is not a bad thing. We just need to replace evil desires with holy ones. God promises blessing to those who trust him. Now we need to beware, this is not a promise of health, wealth, happiness here, but eternal blessings. We need to fill our minds with the greatness of heaven. Because if if you are here today and you are in Jesus, then you are a co-heir of God's perfect kingdom. All the riches and the glory of heaven are yours. Now that's a prize. That's something to hang on to. And we need to reform our minds about what's really valuable in the here and now. Health and wealth in great quantities aren't actually a guarantee of happiness and even if they were, happiness in life isn't everything. Rather, growing in relationship with God, that's where it's at. But God does give riches here and he gives us an ability to actually enjoy the blessings he gives when it's done in relationship with him and when we're seeking first the riches of heaven, not the riches of this earth. The third thing is, take a risk of generosity. In the second century, Christians um, weren't known for their doctrine, they weren't known for their political positions, but they were known for sharing possessions. A guy called Lucian of Samosata, uh, a pagan observer, he wrote this, about Christians. The poor wretches have convinced themselves first and foremost that they are going to be immortal and live for all time and therefore they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. 
generosity, the radical generosity of Christians, Lucian wasn't very impressed. He was shocked uh, at their stupidity. But I doubt that the Sydney Morning Herald these days would write up Sydney Christians for their radical generosity. Perhaps we need to be a little more risky in our generosity. So when Paul talked and we read it uh, about a Christian attitudes of wealth in 2 Corinthians 9, he said, remember this, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Uh, each man or woman should give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly. It's not a compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, Having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And now he who supplies seed to the, the sower and bread for food will supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, as Christians, we don't have to tithe. We are free. We don't give 10%. We don't have to work out whether it's 10% of gross or 10% of net and, and do the calculations there. We don't have to do the deductions. We're actually free to be generous, to give the way God does. And I want to say we just scratched the surface. It's an uncomfortable topic to talk about money. But hey, morning tea, good chance to explore it a little further. Maybe you could ask people about their attitude to money over morning tea. Wouldn't that be an unusual conversation? We just scratched the surface. Three principles, though, for, for remembering generosity. It's, it's not about law, it's about grace. You know, we give because first Jesus gave himself up. He gave up the riches of heaven so we can enjoy them. It, secondly, it's, it's, it's not about this church. Uh, there are other ways to give. See, God wants his people, you and me, to be generous wherever there's need, not just here. And thirdly, it's not about money, it's about your soul's health. See, the love of money, not money itself, it's the love of money is a root of all kind of evils. And we need to be countercultural, and we need to talk about money with each other and we need to help each other with the problem of greed because our souls are at stake. Now for some of us, generosity just flows naturally like a tap. Uh, for others, and, and I'd include myself in this, generosity is something I have to work away at. Uh, I find it hard to cheerfully give in the lavish way that God does uh, and the lavish way he's freed me up to. Uh, but the only way I'm going to ever manage <laughs> to become a cheerful giver, a generous giver, is I, if I keep going back and see the generosity of God, uh, the God of second chances, the God who tables and offers, just test me. I need to remember Jesus' willingness to give up the riches of heaven, to die on that shameful cross, to free me from laws, to free me from my selfishness and my idolatry and to share with me the riches of heaven. See, in Malachi's time, God called his people, return to me. The unchanging God of second chances. doesn't matter what you've done, what you've become, come back to me, welcome home. But returning looks like something. It has to change you. It means wholehearted trust in him. Now, God hasn't been worried. He's not worried when they're not bringing the, the tithe in uh, about getting crops for them. You know, in verse 10 he says, I can throw the floodgates of heaven open. It's not like God is short on cash. God doesn't need things from us. But he wants good relationships. 
Return to me, I'll return to you. And for Israel, and perhaps you and I, the bank account is one way to measure whether we've returned. That we've really left idols behind. Uh, Sir William Hartley got this principle uh, from humble beginnings. Uh, he built a jam-making, well, business-come-empire. Uh, still one of the biggest jams produced in the UK 140 years later. He was a man who knew Jesus and so at age 29 he committed to this course of giving that um, as his wealth grew, that the percentage, the proportion he would give would increase. In his opinion, he said, nothing raises money to a higher plane, gives it a higher interest than systematic giving. I sit on my money, it doesn't sit on me. To distribute my money is harder and more anxious task than making it. And so amongst other things he was known for voluntarily raising wages for his workers, he was known for providing low cost, high quality housing for his workers. He sat on his money, not the other way around. He's a man who would return wholeheartedly to God. Uh, And I know that because this is his rationale. Um, The adoption of an enlightened policy is generally a gradual process. But the more we cultivate the spirit of Jesus Christ, the easier the thing becomes. And what appeared to us quite impossible at the beginning becomes not only possible but absolutely a joy. William Hartley was a man who knew the God of second chances and it returned wholeheartedly. The people in Malachi's time were challenged, returned, trust him, even in the most sensitive area, their wallets. Have we? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Father, we want to thank you for your radical generosity that you would give up uh, your son that we might enjoy the wealth and riches of heaven. Uh, Father, help us to flee from greed as swiftly as we flee from hell itself. Uh, Father, help us to be people who trust you wholeheartedly and take the risk of trusting you in uh, even the most sensitive and delicate of areas, uh, our our love of money. Uh, Father, we pray that you would reshape us to be people Uh, who trust in your goodness and your provision, that people might see our lives and give thanks to you. Amen.